Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every week, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today is a martial artist, author, actor, and producer. He grew up running cross-country and track while in high school, which he partially credits to his martial arts success later in life. By the end of his competitive fighting career, he had won every major national tournament in the country, was a number one rated U.S. national tournament champion for three consecutive years. According to Official Karate Magazine, he played an instrumental role in rejuvenating semi-contact karate in the late 70s. He's won numerous Lifetime Achievement Awards and been inducted into many Hall of Fames, has appeared on the covers of dozens of martial arts magazines. You've seen him in movies like Force 5, Revenge of the Ninja, and Wheels on Meals with Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung, and he even appeared in the TV series Nash Bridges, which is one of my favorites. He has a brand new podcast coming out called Sidekick Podcast. Please welcome my guest today, Mr. Keith Vitale. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing fine, Brian. Nice to be on your show. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. So how we like to kick it off, I want to go back to the beginning and, and just kind of find out where did that first spark about martial arts, that initial interest that started your martial arts journey, where did that come from? I Actually, I was on a track scholarship mm -hmm. in Charleston, South Carolina, and I came home for the summer break, and I had a good friend of mine, high school friend of mine, who was going to a different university, uh, USC, University of South Carolina, came over to the house and he said he wanted me to meet his karate instructor. Now, this was in the early 70s, so I had no idea what the word karate meant. Okay. So I jumped in the car with him. We went to uh, the University of South Carolina where his instructor, John Roper, was teaching class. Uh, I sat down, I watched about 30 minutes, was totally overwhelmed. I loved every second of it. I saw a smaller guy fighting a taller guy, and he was holding his own by kicks, using his kicks. And I had never seen anybody throw kicks before, so I just fell in, instantly in love with it. And then at the end of the class, the instructor came over, and um, my friend is John Bellinger, mm -hmm. who is um, my high school buddy. He introduced me to John Roper. This is an American name, but John's Korean. And then John took the time. He spoke with me a little bit. He showed me how karate works. He punched me in the chest with two knuckles. And then he made the comment. He said, listen, if you ever think about transferring over or coming to the class, I'd be glad to teach you. I went home, called my track coach, dropped my scholarship. <laughs> the next day, I drove over to the University of South Carolina. And I was living in Columbia. So I drove over to the uh, USC and uh, went to admissions. I um, gave him my documents and... Uh, Next thing I know, I waited about, I guess, seven days. I was admitted to the college, and I started taking karate under John Roper. Wow. I mean, was that <laughs> blown away? My, my parents got upset. I was going to say, how did your parents react? Oh. Wow. <laughs> yeah, no, they weren't happy. But I, I'm, it's not that I'm that impulsive in life, but I, I am that passionate in life. And when something moves me, then I go at it 100%. And this is something that I went at it 100%. I, I just fell in love with it. And all these years later, I still adore the martial arts. And if I was the president, I would mandate it in every kindergarten, middle school, high school, college. And not for the, the fighting aspect, but mm -hmm. for the leadership qualities aspect. All the benefits that you derive, that you get from the martial arts, starting with respect and discipline. Mm -hmm. And if you just start there, then the world's a better place. Well, if you run for president, I'm voting for you just for that. I mean, honestly, if you ran on that, that alone, you'd probably get a ton of votes from probably every martial artist in the country. So, so now, did you completely give up track and cross country? You didn't run 100%. at USC at all? Wow. No, no, but now, now imagine I, I mm -hmm. gave it up. I did go meet the coach, and the coach wanted me on the team, but I just had a different path. I just uh, I started just going to classes now, and the classes were only two times a week mm -hmm. at USC. 
but I was just, I would just practice all the time. And, and we had a couple of buddies, John Bellinger and a couple of us, and we'd work out in the yard. You know, it's just, it was back in the old days. Mm-hmm. Gear won't be invented for another 10 years. And we're just, or maybe eight years. And um, so we were just falling in love and working out and training. And, and I loved every second of it. And I, I told myself after about a year, I was very frustrated because I remained a white belt for about a year and a month. Mm-hmm. Most people get promoted out of white belt in two weeks to a month's time or whatever. But I had a very strict Korean instructor. He didn't believe in, in um, belts that much. And so he held me back and I was a white belt for the longest time. You know how frustrated it is mm-hmm. when you're so passionate about something and you tell somebody, maybe a friend, a year later, you walk, you run <laughs> into the same friend. He goes, hey, are you doing still, you doing martial arts? You're still doing karate? And you say, yes, I'm still doing it and I love it. Well, what belt are you? <laughs> oh, I'm still a white belt. You know, so you could just imagine most people thought I was just terrible, but I just had a very strict instructor. Then within another, let's say, 10 to 11 months, I did make it all the way through the belts to black belt. So within two years, I was a black belt. Wow. Which back then, that that wasn't easy back then. <laughs> no, That's... no. It was it was, a, it was a tough way to make a, uh, uh, just a tough way to make a living because I was Taekwondo mm-hmm. and I had to fight only and attend the National Taekwondo Association tournaments and workouts. And it's, it was tough, you know, it's just, it was really hard. And I, I think it, it was my the day I received, or the, yeah, the day I received my black belt was the day I entered the national tournament out of out of Atlanta under the the Kim system, and uh, there was Korean, you know, black belts from all over the country, and I ended up winning that day. It was pretty nice. So, do you remember your very first tournament? What belt and how that one went? Yeah, I remember walking into. Uh, you know, I had my, I got there, tournament starts, let's say eight or nine. I'm there at seven o'clock. <laughs> I have a white belt, white uniform, and I'm sitting on steps waiting for the person to open up the door, the promoter to open the door, to let, and I'm the first person there. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> How'd you do with that tournament? Yeah. And I, you know, I only, back then they only had a few tournaments a year Yeah, and I seemed to do pretty well. And um, I just... You know, I, it was just something that I, I was passionate about and trained all the time. And I wasn't as gifted. But think about this. I didn't have to be as gifted. First of all, I had a track background. I was a distance runner. Mm-hmm. So I could run all day. That means I could fight all day. Yep. So I have an advantage with a great cardiovascular. So I can, I just, you know, I can beat up Bruce Lee and, and Jackie Chan at the same time if they're tired and worn out. <laughs> if they can't raise their arms and, and they're, just, they're beat. You, we've all been so tired. You're so exhausted. You can't move a muscle. Yep. Well, that's how I like to fight my, my opponents. And if I can put pressure on them and work them and, and just really just wear them down, then that's going to be a benefit for me. And the second thing is I had more probably miles on my legs and they had their cars most of the time. Mm-hmm. I was doing distance up to 20 miles a day. And so here I am. I'm a distance runner, good cardiovascular, strong legs. I have long legs. And then I have a heart and the heart is the main thing. I have the desire and, you know, the will to, to win. So you put those things and I didn't have the balance or coordination. I wasn't gifted like other fighters or other martial artists. I, I just had to work twice as hard as everybody. Back then, was it just sparring or did they, had they started doing forms yet in tournaments? The ones Yeah, they, they did all those forms and you, you could just stab me in the eye. I mean, every <laughs> time I saw a form, I just, I just, I just detested them. Not that the movements, I understood the rationale behind them. Mm-hmm. But I am so competitive, I would go to a tournament and I see three fat slobs sitting behind a desk, you know, a table, and they haven't probably worked out in a year, but now here's a tournament, so they've got their black belt on and they're judging. And it's so subjective. So you get up and do a form, it's like a beauty pageant. Whatever they decide you get, then they're going to give you that score. I never, ever competed one time, but I would sit back and watch. And I'd go, you know, I'd have more respect if they, the people doing the forms that were judging also had to do forms themselves, because then I'd have respect for them. But I just had a hard time thinking, you know, here's a fat slob looking at me, telling me I'm going to be good or not. Don't judge me. 
All you have to do is beat me. And if you can beat me, God bless you. And that's all I would think. Yeah, I don't mind. Get in the ring and fight me. If you can, if you can beat me, then, then uh, I'll, I'll respect you. But I had a hard time respecting uh, Judge. And that's not right. That's not the be best attitude. And I knew it. I just, you know, I had it for myself. I had a star student years later. Uh, I was number one fighter in the country. I'm in a tournament, the national tournament in Florida and U.S. Open. And my little kid is Jerry Prince, who turned out to be a national champion, but he was only like a green belt at the time or just an underbill. And he's probably 10, 12 years old. And he does the most phenomenal form you've ever seen. Splits, jumps, spins. But we had our hands down, not by our side. Traditionally, we had our hands up. At the end of his form, which was light years ahead of anybody else's, all three judges gave him a zero. And when they gave him a zero, they called him to the table and they said, we don't know who your instructor is, but he's not doing you a, a, a service teaching you this way. And my little guy, Jerry Princess, well, he's right there. And I was like only 15 feet away. He says, why don't you tell him yourself? And they looked at me and they went, oh, crap, because I was the number one fighter in the country. I walk over to the stand, I mean, over to the table. And I said, you three gave this young boy a zero. Well, Mr. Vitale, you have to understand he, he didn't have his hands by his side. And I said, well, here's the good news. All three of you judges are going to spar today. I'm going to enter you in the tournament. And when you fight me later, I'm going to teach you why you don't hold your hands by your side and you hold them up. <laughs> and they said, well, don't be like that. And I said, no, you're, you just almost traumatically damaged this young kid. Thank God I'm here. I said, but you should have never given anybody a zero, especially no. with form like that. Yeah. But I said, but all we got to do is, and I was serious, I said, all we got to do is sign you up. I'll teach each and one, every one of you why you hold your hands up and not by your side. And then uh, what else could they say? But I mean, that's how, how passionate I was about it at the same time. So, no, wow. I, I enjoy watching forms and my best friends, George Chung, John Chung, wow. Cynthia Rothrock, yep. all these phenomenal people I hung out with. I'd bring them over to my karate school. We trained together and they showed me good, you know, flips and turns. And, you know, I loved it, respected it. I just didn't do it. Yeah. George and Cynthia have both been on the show. So phenomenal martial artists, wonderful guests, wonderful interviews. And yeah, that's cool. So what are some things that stand out that you remember about that first instructor, you know, Mr. Roper? What are some things that really stood out about him, you know, that you still remember to this day? Everything, everything. He, he was such a phenomenal teacher not a good leadership, not a good leader of men and women. You know, he didn't care. We were in the University of South Carolina. We'd have 300 students every session, and he wanted them whittled down to five or 10 people tops. And so he was, he was just vicious, kicking, punching us. You know, if you made a mistake, give me 100 push-ups, get out of the class. I mean, it was, but mm -hmm. he was a precision instructor. He goes, he would just tell us, he goes, most blacks, whites are terrible in martial arts. He says, the only good people in martial arts are Asians. And I would smile, I, and I didn't say anything. But he says, but if you listen to me and let me train you, I will make sure that, that you have great technique. And, you know, and so I worked the sidekick. I worked on nothing but form. Speed and power didn't come into play yet. I was kind of gifted that way already, but it was the form. And if you have perfect form and then you have timing. So he was a great teacher of strategy and technique like that. I wish he'd have been a better motivator. You know, I, I know when I went off to teach myself in uh, Atlanta, uh, I was working for a guy named Joe Corley, and I promised myself I would teach with positive reinforcement versus the boot camp way he taught us. And that's, he told us, he's a, it's like boot camp. You're a white belt. You're nothing. As you get to darker belts, it symbolizes more knowledge. And I'll give you respect when you get your higher belt. But the thing is, he just really hammered form. And because of that, I would have people tell me my beginning of my career till the end of my career, they would always go, you have the prettiest form, the best technique. And guess what? Technique is everything. When you're throwing a sidekick in a real life situation and you need your sidekick to stop somebody that outweighs you 50 or 100 pounds, if your knee is up or down or your foot position is off, they're going to just collapse your leg and get on top of you and hit you. But if you can stick somebody with that sidekick, with that heel, with perfect speed and power and timing, you're going to break them in half. I mean, you're going to just, you know, hit the floating ribs or, or whatever. So I, I was always so just proud that I had a, a hard instructor. I didn't care for it during the time 
but I guarantee you after it was over, I was going, God bless. I had that great instructor. Mm-hmm. We became friends and he, he would tell me things, but it was a, a very tough way to go. I, I would do something incorrectly in, in class and I literally have to do a hundred pushups, stand up and let him do a jump back kick and kick me wow. and then throw me out of the class, you know, and then I had to come back. It was a free class at a university and I tell him I need to come back, but I, I was not going to let this guy beat me. I, and he said, Keith, I tried to beat you down. I tried to get rid of you. I wanted to see your heart. And I went, God, I just so competitive. I went, there's just no way I was going to stop. So what was your black belt test like? Well, actually, it, was, it wasn't a black belt test at all. It was, he awarded me my black belt. He says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to drive down to Atlanta. We're in Columbia. And there's a national tournament. And Eugene Kim is the head of all the, you know, the, uh, the whole Taekwondo Association. Mm-hmm. And I have been down a couple of times to train with the Kim brothers and, and, and also some of the Taekwondo people. They knew who I was because they knew who John Roper was. I show up that day with a black belt on and the head of, of the entire Taekwondo Association comes over to me and goes, you don't deserve that black belt. You didn't test under us. You will fight everybody in this tournament, all the black belts. And they lined the black belts up for me. And I had to go through each and every one of them. Wow. And then... Um, I beat each, you know, it's just, I'm so fortunate I was on that day, but I I beat each of his black belts. There was one that was, get this, one is so gifted, so just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. I've never seen anybody as good as his black belt. And he could jump like over you. And he's probably a a black gentleman about a a 6'2", 6'3". I've never seen anybody can jump that high or have that kind of speed. So here is my first tournament. This guy has never been beaten. And I ended up fighting him and I was fortunate and I win. Well, 10 years later, I'm at this national tournament and I'm the number one fighter in the country. And this gentleman walks over to me and he goes, hi, hi. Uh, he introduces himself to me. And I said, well, nice to see you. He goes, I just want you to know that I never got a chance to find open tournaments like you do all over the country. I have I'm always been loyal to find only in, in Taekwondo tournaments. And I've been the Taekwondo national champion all these years and never been beaten. And he had like five or six guys, like an entourage around him. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, his name was like Skipper Williams. And I said, so you're Skipper Williams? He goes, yes. And everybody says, oh, yes, he's unbeatable. Nobody's ever beaten him. And then I said, wow, you must really be good. And then I went, I kind of remember, didn't somebody beat you at one of your national tournaments? And they were all going, no, no. I said, no, wait a minute. Pretty sure there was a skinny white boy that kicked your ass one day. And he stopped and looked at me. He goes, it was you. It was you. He goes, oh, my God. We didn't know who that guy was. He just showed up and he and he beat me. We had never seen him before. You're the number one in the country. Oh, it took the number one country guy to beat me. Oh, my God. And he was just so you know happy that I turned out being the top fighter in the country. That's cool. But uh, that was my first experience. But it was kind of cool. I, I really enjoyed it. That's really cool, actually. So then how long did you stay uh, at that school with Mr. Roper before you moved on and continued your journey? Maybe just a few years. And then, you know, I was in college. Mm-hmm. And so I moved on and I got out of school, out of college, and I went to work in Atlanta for Joe Corley, became his head instructor for a few years, which was phenomenal for me because Joe Corley had this national tournament called the Battle of Atlanta. Yep. And all the top fighters in the country would converge once a year. I think it was in like June or July at his tournament. And so I had one of his schools and a lot of the fighters, the top fighters in the country would come down a day or two or three days early and work out at our school, which allowed me in turn to work out with them. And every time I would work out with somebody, you know, I'd pick their brains or look at their technique and whatever. And so I was so fortunate to be able to have so many different people to train with and, and uh, exchange techniques. And I know there's, I had friends like Super Dan Anderson up in Oregon very seldom did anybody go there to work out with him. He'd have to travel. But I had people coming all the time. I had them all. I had, you name it, if you were anybody almost in the nation during those years, you came to my school and you worked out with us. Nice. And uh, so I had a chance to all, the whole top 10 came, you know, and we were so competitive. We tried to kill each other in a ring, but we were friends. And when they came over, we would just work out at night and work out and work out and uh, go out to eat together and drink. I mean, just, it was that kind of rapport and uh, I, I was so blessed to be a part of that era because that era was what we call the golden age or the renaissance age. You had the phenomenal fighters like Joe Lewis and Bill Wallace and Jeff Smith and those people. And then they retired to fight full contact and it left a void. And that void it took two years without the ratings or three years went by. 
And so finally, they started up the national tournaments again. We started having the ratings again. And um, it was a wonderful time because the magazines followed the fighters and they followed the tournaments and they wrote articles on each winner. And a lot of times they would put the winner of these tournaments on the covers. Well, guess what? These magazines create stars yep. because, you know, people from all over the country. And at the time, America was the leading martial arts really phenomena in the whole country. I mean, sorry, the whole world. So are these karate magazines, Black Belt Magazine, Official Karate, KI, they all went all over the world. So we were kind of known at that time. I was fortunate to be on like 13 covers in a short amount of time. And sometimes I'd have two or three tournaments covered stories about me in them because I'd win so much. So it was a fortunate time that I had covers because today, all these years later, people remember me from when, you know, from that era only because of the magazines and the covers and the stories. A few years after I retired, the magazines quit. I, you know, they, they quit going to the tournaments. They quit writing about them, mm -hmm. and especially they quit putting uh, martial arts champions on covers any longer. And when they did that, sport karate kind of died out. It, it's still going, yeah. but you don't know who anybody is. Bill Wallace told me one time he was in Italy or someplace, and I think he was in Russia. And he said, Keith, this is like 20 years after we both retired. He goes, you know, I'm in Russia and people are asking me about Keith Vitale and Joe Lewis. And I'm going, why me? He goes, because they still have your magazines. He goes, but there's no articles written. There's no coverage, no marketing or publicity on, on any of these other fighters. Nobody can tell you the number one fighter in any division is today because there's no magazines. Yeah. There's no coverage. So, and it's kind of tribal. There's so many associations like NASCA and WACO. I mean, there's so many. Nobody knows who, who is the top fighter. I was so fortunate that during my era, all the magazines had one set of, of uh, ratings. And, it, you know, I was fortunate to be the top fighter for three years. And so that went such a long way and so many covers and which led the covers, if you, I don't care if you were a motorcycle racer or a model, it's going to help you in your path. Me, I was a, a fighter, a martial artist, and those people in Hollywood looking for stars mm -hmm. saw me on magazine covers, called me up, and that's how I got started in, in the film work, okay. came from covers. Yeah, and if I hadn't been on these covers or these magazines didn't exist, I would have never been discovered. I would have never done films. Oh, that was going to be my next question, kind of what, what led to that. So talk about that. Talk about your your experience in, in Hollywood and like your first movie and stuff, kind of how that came about and how that was for you. It's wonderful. I you can't be more blessed than me. I mean, some people, you know, always think, you know, it's like I, I read about these certain celebrities or people and I go, they were always in the right place at the right time. I was very fortunate. I was that way. I trained with the very best fighters in the world. So I came up and trained with the Chuck Norris's and Joe Lewis's and Bill Wallace's. Mm -hmm. So just imagine that. I was so fortunate that these were the people I trained with. Then I'm in an era with the Ray McCallum's and John Longstreet, Super Dan Anderson, Mike Genovese, I mean, all these Robert Harris, all these phenomenal fighters that were so just, you couldn't believe how versatile they were, hands and feet, and they were just so such great fighters that the magazines then followed us. So first of all, I'm in a great era, I've got great fighters, great competition, and I have great coverage and marketing. These magazines created so many stars, so blessed that way, and then two, Canon Films finds me on a magazine, calls me up and says, how would you like to be in our film called Revenge of the Ninja? So doing that, what's the chance that that's one of the first films that gets a theatrical release in the country? Mm -hmm. uh, Enter the Dragon was one of them. Yep. But MGM, for some reason, liked this movie. It was a ninja movie. And they picked it up and put it in every theater in the country, a major theatrical release. And this film, Enter the Ninja, was so powerful it had such an impact on the film world that it created all the ninja craze. How many ninja movies have they been now? Probably 100, 200. And this first one was so successful. And when it first came out, Variety Magazine came out. It was a third for, I think, for production for that week, making money. And there was like the Jedi and Risky Business and National Lampoon and all these iconic films. And Revenge of the Ninja was number three. So... If I'm not blessed, it's my first starring role. I get a theatrical release. I've got so many magazines because I was in the right era. And then now that era's dead, is gone, it's no longer there. 
And I couldn't tell you who the top fighter in any division and any organization is at all. I know there's websites all through that track it, but like you said, not, you know, I, I love magazines. I used to subscribe to so many magazines and it's just, it's not worth it anymore. It's, you know, half of them, half the pages are ads <laughs> and not as many stories. So, but uh, yeah. And, and I, you mentioned Revenge of the Ninja that's with, with uh, Shokasugi. That must've been pretty cool working with him. Well, it's so cool. And, and, and to, to digress just a little bit, one of the problems with the tournament world, it wasn't that they lost, I, I think, they, the romanticism didn't leave the sport karate. It was still there. In fact, after us, they had phenomenal fighters. They were great fighters. They, you know, each era got better. The problem was with the promoters. The promoters started trying to outdo each other by giving out world championships. And what you do is you give out a world championships to a white belt, green belt, blue belt, and every division, forms, fighting, weapons, musical forms. Well, what happens is you're a magazine uh, writer or maybe you work for a newspaper in a local city and you have 78 people call you up and say they won the world championship yet, you know, yesterday at the tournament. <laughs> or if 400 people call you up and they go, there's 400 world champions in martial arts? You know, so it got so overwhelmingly just watered down that people said, screw it. I'm not going to even cover you guys anymore. You guys have just watered down the sport. And I noticed uh, yesterday there was a post on Facebook, one of my own students, uh, Marty and I, he's a great fighter. I, I love him. And he has a big sign up. He's the world champion uh, fighter from NASCAR. And I went, what world are we talking about? <laughs> you know, there might be two fighters in his division. It's not his fault. He shows up, he wins. But why would you give somebody a world championship in every division? It, it's it just waters down the meaning of, of what a world champion is. And that's why there's no magazine coverage or heroes or stars and all that stuff is gone. But getting back to Revenge, working with Shokasugi was like a dream. I didn't think the movie was going to be that good personally because it was very violent, bloody. Shokasugi was so far over the top with like he had 46 uh, weapons he used. And wow. oh, it, it was in person, when you watch it, you just go, how can they make this good? Now, I didn't know any better because it's my first star and role. Mm -hmm. You know, there's ways to add music and edit and add sound, and you can make something dynamic. The, the only difference, the only movie I was ever in where I could tell it was a hit was a movie I did Wheels on Mills with Jackie Chan and Samuel Hung and Yuong Bao and Benny Yukitas was in it. Benny. As we were filming, I would watch and go, this is the best stuff I've ever seen. It was so good that you couldn't believe what you were watching. And yet there was no music. There was no editing. There were, I mean, you just couldn't believe what you were watching. That's how good that movie was, or those guys really were. They were just phenomenal. But Revenge, you know, I was pleasantly surprised when MGM picked them up. And then we had premieres in Los Angeles. Uh, it was wonderful. It played in every theater. You know, it's my first film, and I know I sucked as an actor. Guess what I was supposed to? I went from being a fighter to an actor all like in one day, and then that you're supposed to, now in film, you want to, of course, emit and project facial expressions and all the, the emotion that you can. That's how you tell the story. But I'm a fighter, and a fighter doesn't project any emotions. What you do as a fighter is you withhold them. And you hold those emotions back. You know, for example, you're sparring and somebody hits you with a sidekick. You don't cry. You don't hold your arm and go, oh, that hurts. You don't show it. You hold it in. Well, that's the opposite for film. And at the end of that film, Chuck Norris called me up and he goes, Keith, you did a great job. And I said, well, that might be true, but it was kind of rough. And he goes, it was rough for him, too, at first, because he says we're holding it in. We're not projecting because we're fighters. Fighters don't ever, you know, showcase their, their emotions like they're hurt or they were hit. You know, you, you would embolden the guy you're fighting if you cried when he was hitting you. So it's a different world. But then I started taking more acting classes and and uh, I enjoyed it. And I got better, I think, per performance. Talking about Revenge of the Ninja, I mean, it's still, I, I, I talked to guests today that still list that as one of their favorite martial arts movies of all time. I mean, I'll still go back and watch it. It's, it's, it, was a, it, it was a classic. And like you said, I think that one kind of kicked off the ninja craze in the U.S. I mean, you know, the martial arts craze was, was starting to kick off, but that specifically, the, I mean, there was even like Ninja Magazine and stuff. And there was, like you said, just, just in the 80s alone, there's probably 100 ninja movies out. And that, that's the one that kind of started it. So 
ninja outfits, ninja shoes, ninja, you know, everything's ninja, ninja this, ninja stars, ninja shurikens, and on and on and on. But that film just started it. But it also put Canon Films on the map because they were just a low-budget film company. Yep. And then it went from making low-budget films to making, you know, $100 million films after that. Yep. Revenge, I was just so blessed to be in that film. And I had a great experience, and uh, at the end, I died in the film, and I just I remember laughing about it because it's, how did I, I had no clue how to die in the film. You know, <laughs> so the bad ninja is killing me and with a, a shuriken, and I'm on the ground, and I'm dying. I have dialogue as I'm dying, and uh, I remember later, uh, the film came out, and, and my son would always make fun of me, and my daughter, Jennifer, you know, she would laugh and never say anything, but my son, Travis, would just laugh and laugh, and every time he got in trouble, I'd say, Travis, you're in big trouble. He would do my entire dying scene, fall <laughs> on the ground, hold his neck, and he actually would do it better than me. I mean, literally better than me. That's awesome. <laughs> and I, goes, I go, Travis, you got to quit doing that. I can't punish you if you keep making me laugh. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. And then he would just, he had my dialogue down, my accent down. He had it all. That's and awesome. I, I just loved him. But of all the movies I've done, no matter what I've done, the Jackie Chan stuff's good, but whatever I've done the most, people come to me and they go, from that film, we hated to see you die in that film. That's mm -hmm. the common denominator for that film. You know, they're probably thinking I sucked as an actor, but I never suck as a kicker or a puncher. My techniques, I always was so confident with them. I have long legs and I know I can throw them aesthetically with the pretty techniques. And so I was very confident about my, my physical prowess, but of course, acting was a whole different story. But uh, I, I love the fact that still after all these years, people go, yeah, I saw the film. I, I, you know, we hated it when you died in that film. I kind of like that. I kind of love resonating enough with an audience where they didn't want to see me die. Because I've seen films well, I've watched people that stink as an actor, and I hope they die. I hope they get off the screen as quick as possible. That's cool. <laughs> so I, I got to ask, you know, even though it's not martial arts really related, but I got to ask about Nash Bridges because that was one of my favorite shows I used to watch. I never missed an episode, and I still watch it when it comes on in reruns. So kind of what, what led to that, and how, how was it working with, uh, with Don Johnson and Cheech Marin? Oh, it was heaven on earth because yeah. it was my first experiences not working on a martial arts film. Mm -hmm. This was a TV show. So they had had me on not only as an actor but as a stunt person as well, and I remember that the first time I I had to fight Stone Cold Steve Austin on the second episode, and that was a phenomenal fight. Yeah, and then the first one I had to fight Joe Hess, and Joe Hess and I have been part of a an action film camp that we've been teaching for ten years up in uh, Storm King Mountain up in New York, okay. and Keith Strandberg. Michael D. Pasquale and myself started this film camp because we wanted to have a camp for people who were aspiring to be a martial artist, have a place to go for a week and learn how to break into films. And we would teach them about stunt fighting and, and you wear your light and, you know, how to react to films and all that, which is great. And then Keith Strandberg and I produced films together. We would kind of cherry pick certain students that attended these festivals and put them in our movies. So that helped. So here, Joe Hess is one of the instructors. I've fought Joe so many times and worked out with Joe so many times. He's like 6'6", six, six, probably 400 pounds, 350, 400 pounds. So we get to this uh, this TV show with Nash Bridges, and Don Johnson's the producer. He's, he calls all the shots. And I'm working with a guy, his name is uh, Merritt Yoakum, and he's the, get this, he's the fight coordinator. Now, he goes on to win Emmys, so he's phenomenal. He's worked on all these shows, but at this time, he choreographed the fight scene for us. He films it, and as he films it, he says, guys, I'm going to take this to Don Johnson. Let him okay what I put down, you know, just going through the, the fight moves. Mm -hmm. He says, and if everything's fine, we'll bring you back tonight. We'll actually shoot the episode. So we go back to the hotel. We're in San Francisco. We get a quick phone call. And Merritt, the fight coordinator, said, no, get back here right now. I'm going to send a car to pick you guys up. We go. I said, what's the problem? And he says, oh, Don Johnson and Cheech hated it, hated everything about it. It was too pretty. They don't want anything pretty. They want some gritty. They want something just like over the top. So we had to rehearse. We only had a couple hours because we're getting ready to film. So we rehearsed, and then Don Johnson, he's in the scene, so Cheech is in the scene. And I thought Don Johnson was probably the best-looking man I've ever seen in my life. I was like, <laughs> going, oh, my God, look at this guy. He's just – he's a movie star that looks like a movie star. 
Whereas, you know, even some movie stars, you can't even tell if you pass them on the street, you wouldn't even know it. Right. But Don Johnson looked like a movie star. So there he is with Cheech. Cheech says something to me, and I start laughing because he sounds like Cheech and Chong, you know, like, <laughs> but that's how he normally talks. It's, you would just assume it's something different, but no, it's, I'm almost laughing going, the way he talks in film is the way he is in real life. So anyway, Don Johnson goes, all right, guys, we're going to shoot in a bit. He told the, the uh, fight coordinator, Merritt, he says, this better be good. And so he goes, Joe Hess and Keith, would you mind running through it? Kind of like 50%, let me look at it. And so now I looked at Joe Hess and Joe Hess says, Keith, he says, I don't care. Let's do it 100% and just go, we already had our outfits on in a whole bit. Mm-hmm. So he said, uh, I, I looked at Joe, I said, okay, we'll just do it. So the director goes, action. And we're supposed to just run through the techniques. It's a big fight scene. The end, Joe picks me up and he body slams me over a coffee <laughs> table and the glass breaks. Wow. So we go through it. It's so violent. It is so rough. It's so incredible. Don Johnson stands up and starts screaming and clapping. And Jay's <laughs> going, oh, my God, that's just great. And the director walks over and says, are you okay? And I went, I'm fine. He goes, no, no, he hit you 15 times. He, he, I think he broke you. He broke you. I, he never hit me one time. And then she, Don goes, what? I go, guys, he never hit me one time. They go, but it looked like he was just taking your jaw off and kicking you in the head. And, and so, you know, I said, no. I said, I've worked with Joe Hess all these years. We know how to sell it. I mean, you know, we miss each other, but we're selling it in a way they couldn't tell the difference. And it was, cool. the, I think, the highlight of my career from an ego standpoint, when the director, we shot it and everything worked out great. And the director came over and he goes, out of all my years of directing and all the TV shows and action shows, he says, that's the best fight scene I've ever seen. He said, because I thought you were hurt in every single one of those takes. Hmm. He said, I thought he was killing you. And he goes, for you to guys to sell that in a way that we're here in person and can't tell, he goes, that's, that was just incredible. That's so awesome. they liked it so much, they brought me back out again. And then they called me for another episode. They said, get this, a lady calls me up for the casting. And she says, you need to, we're going to have you fight Stone Cold Steve Austin. You are the bad guy. He's a policeman working with Don Johnson and Cheech. I said, fine. And they said, but we have some bad news for you. I said, what do you mean? You lose this fight. And I went, I don't understand. Of course, if it's in the script, I'll do what the script says. She goes, well, you don't have the attitude that most wrestlers have. And I went, I'm not a wrestler. She goes, oh, she says, because when I talk to wrestlers, none of them, all of them hate to lose. They don't want to lose on film. (laughs) And I went, it's ridiculous. Whatever's in the script, I'm an actor. You know, I do whatever's in the script. So we went there and we filmed and there's probably three, 400 people on this set is a big wedding. Everybody's in tux. The mayor, the real mayor for San Francisco is in the scene itself. And we're right on the bay, right there in San Francisco on the water. So it's a little chilly, but there's hundreds and hundreds of people. It was one of the funniest episodes of my life or times of my life because Merritt's there again. He choreographs everything. And I'm supposed to tackle Stone Cold Steve Austin. He hits the ground. I hit the ground. We get up and we do our fight sequence. Again, guess what happens? He picks me up. He body slams me into a table with a punch bowl on it for a wedding. And they want to see how high that punch can come out of the bowl. Plus, they have the table kind of sawed where it's going to collapse as well. Wow. So the director goes, and we're ready. Everything's set. We're ready. And the director goes, action. Hundreds of people there. Everything's going. And I run and I tackle Stone Cold Steve Austin. And he stands as sturdy as, as a light pole, about <laughs> as thick as a light pole. I hit him like a Bugs Bunny cartoon and bounced to the ground and laid on the ground. <laughs> and he didn't. And they go, cut, cut. Director goes, what happened? And I looked over at, at uh, Stone Cold and I said, Steve, can you please go with the, with my tackle? Can you go with the tackle? He goes, he picks me up. He goes, okay, little buddy, I got you. But it was every bone in my body hurt. After It was like running into a tree. Go full, as fast as you can, hit a tree and then bounce off a tree. That's what it felt like. Wow. And then, uh, but it was fine. He picks me up at the end of the fight. He body slams me and, and the director goes, cut, runs over there. Are you okay? And I said, I didn't feel a thing. I never do. I, I have a gator back. Uh, it's a protective uh, garment that you put on your back and uh, it protects your back. I never felt anything. These guys are pros. They know how to do it. And we broke the uh, table. Director goes, he said, Keith, can you do all this again? He said, I need a backup. I go back to the, you know, back to the trailer, hair, makeup, change my clothes, 
get ready. Everybody's waiting for me. I come out and we shoot the whole scene again. We do it all over again. So nice. what a great experience. That's awesome. What a great story. That'd be so much fun. And all right. I, I got to ask. So what first led you deciding to write a book? You know, how did you become an author? Well, I did four instructional books when I was coming up. And uh, the first one I did was called uh, uh, Beginning Karate. And I was so fortunate because I had a good friend of mine, Kent Mitchell, who was uh, uh, one of the sports editors. And he was one of my students. So Contemporary Books called me up and said, we'd like you to write a book called just, you know, anything you want to write it on. I said, well, let me do my first one called uh, Sport Karate. It was probably 20, 30 pages. We put a lot of photos at the end. And I had my ed my good student, uh, Kent Mitchell. He wrote the, uh, uh, I dictated to him. He put it down, made sure the book was legible and okay. readable. And anyway, we sent that off. Contemporary Books calls me up and says, Keith, this book is so good that we're going to make it the template for all how to do books for an entire company. So when we go to anybody, we say, write a book like the one Keith wrote. It was simple, straight how to do it, had a great illustrations, had a nice little bio at the end of it. He says, and we're going to give you a deal for two more books. I wrote two more books that way with him, again with Kent. Mm -hmm. And the first book... Get this at beginning karate book sold 30,000 copies and the university of South Carolina bought it and it was the textbook for the college. Nice. So that was my start. And again, how blessed am I to have Kent Mitchell as sports editor for the Atlanta journal working with me yeah. uh, or one of my students. So it was nice. So the first books were very successful. Then I wrote that one book I love. It was the tournament fighting book I wrote for O'Hara and, uh, it was so cool because I wrote it for them and I flew to uh, L.A. to get the photos done for the book. And I walk in there and it's so cool. They said, well, we need you to have a partner so we can do the, the photographs of how to do the techniques for your book. This guy was sitting there and I said, uh, hey, would you like to be my partner? And he put the outfit on. And his name is James Liu. James Liu ended up being one of the top black belt <laughs> yeah. movie stars and won an Emmy. Yeah. And he said, my book is what is just my partner because he just happened to be there. And then um Mike Stone, I put Mike Stone on the cover, who had just taken Elvis' uh, wife, Priscilla, away, and she was living with him. And he was a big karate star at the time. And so I asked him to do a forward for my book and, and then also be on the cover with me. So he came out and we did a cover with Mike Stone. And then I did one for his book. Uh, I, I wrote the forward for his book. But that's kind of cool when you think about being at the right place at the right time, having Mike Stone and James you know, Lou there and and then having that book. And then I did cut you a couple um, bullying books well, but the, all the books, the one I'm the most proud of is my latest book. It's called Victor Stops the School Bully. And it's an illustrated book, a kid's illustrated book about a 10-year-old boy named Victor who has to move to a new school. And he's using his martial arts skills that he learned in martial arts and applies them to when he's moving, moving to a new school. So I got my best friend, Mike Geneva, as the illustrated instructor in the book. Then I started writing the dialogue for it. My 10-year-old grandson was next to me when I was writing it. And he goes, granted, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm writing this book about a 10-year-old, like, because he was a 10-year-old getting ready to go to a new school. That's why I thought it. He goes, first of all, granddad, you're an old man. He goes, <laughs> how do you know how a 10-year-old thinks? I said, I don't. I have, I'm clueless. I'm stuck behind a typewriter and I'm trying to figure it out. He goes, here, let me write it with you. And he sat down and we wrote it together. That's awesome. Then we got, so I have a book of my grandson. Then this, I had good friends of mine at the state house and the governor and lieutenant governor and representatives and congressmen. They brought myself up, my wife and my dad. And we went into the state house and they presented me a, a, like a lifelong uh, proclamation. And it, it was a certificate of uh, service for our book, Sam and I. So, so I said, Sam, not only you're a published author, but you've already got an accommodation from the state house, from the governor. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, that, I was just reading about that book right before we started chatting. And that you know, my sister's a kindergarten teacher, so I love books like this. And and, I'm... and then I read the book to Sam's class when he was in school. It was during the pandemic and we couldn't go because so I couldn't read it in person. We zoomed in and the teacher was there and he had the book and I read the book to the class and uh, he was so proud to have, you know, to be a co-author with me. I don't care about anything else. Nothing. You can take all my books or anything I've done, writing with my grandson, which I love more than life, and have him on the book. Oh, my goodness. How just 
you you know, I keep saying I'm blessed. Yeah. You know, I, I work hard, but I'm telling you, I've had some wonderful things happen. That's awesome. I mean, that, that like you said, it's just to do that with your grandson and have him be, that's something he's going to remember, obviously, for the rest of his life. And, and he appreciates it and he loves it. And I'll put links for all your stuff. I'll put links for your books and stuff out there so people can check that out for sure. So how did the idea for the podcast come about? Well, it's just recently, I, I've done a lot of podcasts mm-hmm. I, I, for so many people over the last few years. And then one of them, Bruce Willow, he's out of Portugal. I did one with him. And he said, Keith, he says, you know, I said, what I don't understand is why you haven't done your own podcast. <laughs> and I went, what are you talking about? And he, we talked after, you know, we, we filmed. And then he says, you know, you, you've got friends in martial arts and you got friends in the film world, you know, writers and producers and directors and stunt men and women. He goes, you know, you could probably be pretty successful. So then I said, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. And I hired, a, I've got a great uh, website. I hired a great uh, producer to help me produce these. And then I've got uh, constant contact. You know, they're the ones that do the newsletters. We're going to launch uh, on February the 15th. And then I've got already probably 25 episodes already done in the can that we're going to put on. And then you release them, you know, like you know, already once a yep, week, exactly. every Wednesday or whatever. And then I have, and I'll have a martial arts channel and also have Psychics uh, podcast for films. And then I'm going to just continue. I'm going to interview, like you have Richard Norton and Cynthia. I've got uh, Lauren Abaddon on uh, Thursday. I'm doing Lauren Abaddon from No Retreat, No Surrender. Uh, Next week, I'm doing Joe Corley. Um, So I'm going to go on and on and on. And and then um, it's kind of nice. I've tried something different. I hope it's successful. I did 20 different five-minute episodes to go on YouTube, mm-hmm. and they've got the film clips and the and they've got the uh, you know the B-roll and anything to do with the with the uh, photos. But I'm doing behind-the-scenes stories from the movies I've been in, you know. So I've got six episodes just from Wheels on Mills, working with Jackie Chan and Samuel Hung and Benny Yurkidis, and I tell behind-the-scenes stories that nobody's ever heard before, and. I'm hoping to try to figure out how to link some of those Jackie Chan episodes into some of the fan clubs with Jackie Chan. Get this one fan club for Jackie Chan has 75 million people in it. Wow. It's mind boggling. Yeah. That's so crazy. I'm hoping to try to figure out a way to get some of these episodes and, and to links like that. Mm-hmm. That's good. And then that was very smart of you to record that many ahead of time. When I did mine, I think I did 22 or 23 ahead of time, but I, I also, I have a radio background, so I knew what I was doing and I knew I've done worked on syndicated radio before and stuff. So I knew what I had to do to make sure I was doing it. And I'm coming up actually this Thursday will be my episode 99. So wow, haven't, haven't missed a week yet. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think I have, uh, so I think I'm, I've, I think your episode number, I think like 104 or 105. So that I'm recording. Wow. So that's so cool. Yeah. It, it's fun. You're, you're gonna, you're gonna have a blast. That's for sure. Oh yeah. Well, I, I have so many good friends of mine that are, you know, I my um, nephew, I just had dinner with him over Christmas and he's a young guy and he flew in and he was going to the black Panthers, uh, um, party mm-hmm. here in Atlanta because he was one of the stuntmen in Black Panthers and also he was nice. one of the green men in Avatar and That's he's a cool. stunt guy and he, he's one of these guys that holds his breath for over five minutes so they use him a lot mm-hmm. so I'm going to interview him nice. and hopefully I can reach out to people in different you know arenas you know like the movie world for um, the, you know Avatar and Black Panthers I'm on and on so I have so many stunt people that I'm good friends with and actors and like good friends like Keith Strandberg, who's a writer producer and he, he discovered Van Damme. I'm getting ready to interview him. And nice. I guess like I at Thursday, two days from now, I'm doing Lauren Avedon and he's a personal friend of mine. And uh, he was just on the Scott Atkins podcast. Nice. And, you know, so I think it's going to be, it's a fun, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm having a blast doing it so far. That's awesome. And, and like I said, the, your episode will actually be out after February 15th. So it, your show will already be going by the time people hear this episode. So I will definitely put links on there for it. And, oh, and hopefully, wonderful. Hopefully, wonderful. hopefully get, you so you, get you some listeners. So, cause I, I try to promote uh, other martial arts podcasts. It's, you know, it's not like back in the days of radio where it's like all these shows are competing. Cause it's not, it's not like we're both shows that are on Thursdays at 9 a.m., it's a podcast. You can listen anytime. People can listen to every martial arts podcast and they're not competing with each other. So, so we got, we got to support each other and help each other. And that's how the, the, it all grows. And we all help the martial arts world that way and get the people's stories out there. So. 
Wonderful. I love it. I nice. love that. I, I, I've got so many great friends of mine, Sophia Crawford. Uh, she did a double the Buffy the Vampire, and yep. she was a Power Rangers. I'm going to interview her. And I've just got John Crane up in California, who who is a stunt person, wrote the book on stunts, and on and on and on. I'm just so fortunate to have done these films, and I know so many of these actors and producers and writers and and uh, stunt people that I think is. And then, on the other hand, I know so many people, of course, that I want to interview. I noticed some of the people you have on the martial arts side. Mm-hmm. I've already done Mike Geneva. He's coming out on the 15th, his interview. Nice. And then I want to do, like, I saw you have Charlie Lee and you yep. have Simon Reed. These are friends of mine. You have Richard Norton, a good friend of mine. I mean, all these different people that I, I so many people on your, on your site that you've interviewed already are good friends of mine already. I'd love to have them on my show eventually. Nice. And I just, just on uh, Friday, I interviewed uh, Anthony DeLongis too, was another phenomenal interview and great guy, great martial artist. And so, yeah, yeah. Any, any of those people, if there's someone you see on my list that you don't know and need me to put you in touch with, just say the word. If you, if you want a really good stunt man to interview, you should uh, look into Rick Avery. That was a fun, uh, That's cool. he was back, uh, he was episode 14, <laughs> almost two years ago for me, but uh, eighth degree black belt in American Kempo and did professional boxing and yeah, just an amazing stunt career and stuff. But that was, that's another just fun interview. Any, anything I can oh, do to help, I'm, 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 I'm glad to help. So, so what Thanks, is, Brian, what, I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. What are one or two tips you would give someone who is thinking of getting involved in martial arts for the first time in their life? They know nothing about it. And they're just wondering what's one or two things I should maybe look for in an instructor and maybe something I should avoid when I'm looking for a school. That's wonderful. That's, that's a great question. And I taught for so many years and uh, it, it, we're living in a different world now that the people that I see millennials are a different breed of different people, not good or bad, you know, but one of the things I'd always uh, let my parents know when you're shopping around and you're looking for an instructor, you have to remember that the child, whether it's a female or a male, they're going to be emulating and copying almost everything about that instructor. So you need to choose an instructor that you think is a good role model for your for your child. Mm-hmm. And for example, if they're overweight, they're sloppy, and then your students are going to have the same kind of attitude because they're going to copy and just they're like little mini uh, mini me's. And um, a real good example is this that Jerry Prince guy mentioned. One time I was kicking in the class, or he was I was teaching. I had fifty kids on the mat, and they were phenomenal kids. And I joked with Jerry Prince. I said, stop the class. I said, Jerry, every time you kick up in the air, you hold your pinky out. And then everybody laughed. And Jerry goes, I'm sorry, sir. I didn't know I did that. So it's no big deal. I'm just letting you know. You, I don't know why you stick your pinky out of your right hand. The next day I'm teaching. Again, the mother of Jerry Prince stops my class. She says, Mr. Vitale, you got a second? I said, I'm middle of a class. She walks out there, has a photograph of me throwing a round kick with my pinky out. And I didn't know it. Jerry Prince didn't know it, but he was copying me some, you know, just in a way that he's not even subconsciously aware of it, but whatever I'm going to do, they're going to do. So I always say, find a role model that fits your desire, your family's needs, because your kids are going to become that person. And now, like I said, I'm having a hard time with, it's the MMA look, you know, mm-hmm. tattoos all over their face and earrings and their nose and, and ear, you know. And I go, I, that's not me. I, I wouldn't have my kids taking martial arts from them only because I don't want my kids having tattoos on their face and neck and earrings in their nose. But guess what? I'm, and they always tell me, and they're right. They go, well, that's because you're old. I am too old. <laughs> and I went, you're right. There's a whole new, you know, era of martial arts and young people. And it doesn't define who they are. It's just who is what they've done. Right. But again, I would say find that role model that you want your kids to emulate because they're going to emulate that kid. Let them be that positive force in their their lives that are reinforcing your values. And so that's so important what I'm saying. So I, as an instructor, always told the parent that I'm going to be that strong person in your child's life that's going to keep them on the, on the path. And I'm going to be that voice is going to be reinforcing your values. And if I'm not reinforcing your values, they shouldn't be in my class. Take them to another class that shares your values. But by me doing that, and you know that those kids 
are going to not only subconsciously try to be like me, mm-hmm. but they're also going to listen to me more than listen to their parents. And if I can then motivate them in a positive manner and keep them, you know, making good grades in school and being disciplined and respectful, then my course is worth a million dollars. I don't charge a million, but that's what it's worth. Right. And I would tell the parents that and the parents go, I agree a hundred percent. If you can do that with my kids and I go, and, and that's why I was so successful in martial arts schools because my leadership program and how, what I was saying and training, I didn't care about the kicks and punches. Just by osmosis, if they're long enough, they're going to be good in martial arts. I'll make sure they're good in martial arts for self-defense. But just from a leadership standpoint, I'm training leaders. I want them respectful, disciplined, you know, and sharp. And then when their mother says something, their dad something, their reply had to be yes, sir, or yes, ma'am. And there was no if and buts about it, or they, they didn't get promoted. Nice. You know, so it's a tough, it's a long-winded, you know, answer to your question, but I think I answered it. No, Look for definitely. the role model that you want your kids to emulate. Yeah, no, that's, and I, I love that you did that because my, my instructor that I have was the same way. He'd, one of my kids were testing, he'd send a permission slip home and it basically said, my kid has, it said, my kid is doing well in school, yes or no, and my kid is being respectful at home, yes or no. If either one was a no, they didn't get to test for that next belt. So about that. Yeah, I love that. So so you kind of mentioned a little bit you talked about MMA. I'm just curious what what are your thoughts on MMA and the UFC and are you a fan? Ever watch the UFC? You mean, you mean MMA fights? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I I love it. A good friend of mine, uh, Joe Corley, yep, is right. starting PK Karate next month. It kicks off. He has um found financing. He's going to and his uh perception and what his goal is to showcase martial artists doing stand-up fighting mm-hmm. like the old pka fighters in the past yep. uh jerry rome and uh brad hefton and uh, bill wallace joe lewis bill, you know all those guys jeff smith and remember they would stand up and not ki- not get to the ground and wrestle i i enjoy knees and elbows i enjoy the wrestling the mma the what they do on the mat mm-hmm. but um i call trying to bank that he's going to have up a new league starting on uh, ESPN Plus, and it's going to be showcasing fighters standing up only. No knees, no elbows, no no fighting on the ground. I wish him success. I hope he can. I don't know if the country's too jaded or the world's mm-hmm. too jaded now. They expect people to get to the ground. Um, I get bored if they're down on the ground too long myself. Yeah. I'll fast forward it. You know, I But tough? Oh, my God. These MMA fighters – they're a different breed. They're not martial artists in a way that they came up through the system. Now, some have. You know, we come up through respect and discipline and bowing to your instructor. A lot of these people came over from wrestling or boxing or just got in at street fighting, and then they made that transition from there, and they don't have that background of discipline or respect. And you see it sometimes in their language and the way they look and what they do and how they act. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a whole world, a different world. It's not to be compared to like apples and oranges. Yeah. Joe was actually on my show a little over a year ago. It was December of 2021. He was on and, and he talked, to, uh, he hinted at it, but he wasn't ready to quite talk about it yet. So I was like, I, whatever you're doing, I just hope it works. And I'm, I'm so excited that he's close to launching it. And I, I will be one of the ones watching on ESPN plus. So I'm, I'm excited. I, I, I miss kick. I I've only been to, I think four kickboxing matches live in my life. And the last one was probably over 20 years ago. I'd love wow. to see, I'd love to see some good stand up fighting again. I miss it. Yeah, I, I, I think so too. I think there's a, there's a, a, a yearning for it. And I, you know, just because people are so uh, used to seeing people get on the ground and, and choke people out doesn't mean that's the only way to do it. So I, I'm pretty sure Joe Corley's PK karate is going to be successful. And, and uh, I can't wait to get him on the show myself and uh, ask him more questions about it. What I like to do for him would be to put some of his fighters and start doing podcasts with them and building up the yep. personalities. That's nice. Dana White did. Yep, he had exactly. the TV show, remember? Oh, and then yeah. he put these fighters, and then they lived in the house. But guess what? It created stars. Mm-hmm. And I think if Joe would do something similar, get his fighters some publicity, marketing, so people around the country would know who they are, and then you have a following of them. I hope so. Fingers crossed. So, All right, I got some fun questions to wrap it up here. First one, who are three, four, five names you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts? Oh, good. I start off with Bruce Lee. Nice. I just have to go with the uh, Alan Steen. Okay. Alan Steen. And then I'd have to go with June Ree. Nice. Very cool. And these are good questions. And then go with 
got two more, right? Well, you, you got three, more. but you can go, you can get as many as you want. I mean, I've had people do as few as two I and just, as many as seven or eight. So <laughs> I usually ask yeah, for four, but wherever you can get to. Yeah, I I was I would put, and then I have five. I I don't know. They're so good, but I have so much respect for Benny Yakitas, oh, yes, and Joe Lewis, Bill Wallace, Jeff Smith, mm-hmm. and Don Wilson. Those guys are all the best, the best you could get. I mean, they're phenomenal. There's they're light years ahead of almost everybody else. Mm-hmm. So they're, you know, I I would have to go with them. Nice. And those are actually uh, the the last four you mentioned are four I'm trying to get on my show. So Don has already said okay. yes. I just haven't been able to schedule it. I'm trying to get Benny. I'm trying to get Bill, and I'm trying to get Jeff. So hopefully I can have all of them on my show in the next year and, and uh, have some good stuff. But all right. Now in, in all your years of martial arts, is there one philosophy you've learned that is just super important to you? It rises to the top of your list. You keep coming back to it. It's called respect. Nice. You know, I, I love the fact that, that we start off every class and every, every martial arts school in the country, you bow to your instructor mm-hmm. and your instructor respects you back by bowing back. And if we did that in every single kindergarten and elementary school, you start off and you don't have to bow. You can salute, but you, you would have to stand up. And the teacher would first thing you would do is quiet. Nobody move. Stand still. Bow to your, your teacher at school. She bows back. Everybody have a seat. No talking. That's the respect and discipline right there. And that would, that would be it. Mm-hmm. You can't have martial arts without that. I've had funny looks before when I've gone to like visit other martial arts schools, no matter what style I'll bow when I walk in the door and like students look at me funny. Like, why are you, why are you bowing in our school? You're not a student here. I'm like, I'm a martial artist. It's called respect. <laughs> and they just think that's it's so respect. weird. I'm like, come on. <laughs> All right. Now this one, you can't pick one of your own, a favorite martial arts book. I'll go with Dan Anderson's American Karate. We had competing books at the time, okay. and his was both of ours were like the Bible of the time at fighting. But I really loved his. Nice. He's such a smart, wonderful, exciting, dynamic person, personality, and he's a writer. So I'd go with I'd write I'd buy his book today. Dan Anderson, Super Dan. Nice, and no one's actually said that one. Usually, there's people pick some of the same ones, but that's the first time that one's been said. So I like it. All right. Now this next one, you might not have an answer for it. kind of depends. I mean, you were, you were around in the seventies and eighties. So do you have a favorite martial arts video game? Were you ever into video games? Uh, no. Okay. Nah. That was an easy one then. <laughs> All right. Now this one, favorite martial arts TV show. It's called the warriors. Oh, nice. Okay. And this is, it's a TV series. It's on, it's had two years and I'm telling you, I watch it. I'm amazed. They're phenomenal athletes and martial artists and mm-hmm. all Asian, but oh my gosh, I, I really enjoy it. It's called The Warriors. Yep. Very cool. All right. Now this one, you can't pick one you've been in. Favorite martial arts movie. Oh, I love this one. <laughs> okay. You, you're hurting my brain on this one because <laughs> it's so hard. There's so many. You know, I want to go with Enter the Dragon, mm-hmm. but I've got to go with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Nice. It just moved me. That's a great movie. I think you're the third, third or fourth person that's picked that one. Not a lot. Pick a lot of people yeah. have picked Enter the Dragon, but only a few have picked Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So that's awesome. Good answer. You know, there's so many good ones. There's so many that Jackie Chan has like 20 on the best 50 yeah, list, easily. and all of his. But Enter the Dragon is just the classic. It ignited the entire world in martial arts. So yep. he deserves it. Yeah. But. The beauty, aesthetic beauty of martial arts was never portrayed on film like it was with with, uh, the Crouching Tiger one. Nice. Good answer. All right. Final question. And again, can't pick one of your own. This one doesn't have to be a martial arts movie, just a favorite movie fight scene. Yeah, that's a good question. And I've seen so many. Let me see. Let me see. Let me see. I would go with, I've seen so many good ones. I would still have to say it's probably... And I don't, I can't tell you the name of the movie, but it's probably, if I had to say one, um, be a, a Tony Jaw, oh. you know, J-A-A. Yep, like Ong Bak with the or knees one of those. And yep. Yeah, because it just, I, and you could take any of the scenes, not just a favorite scene, mm-hmm. but it's just, it's kind of mind-blowing what he can do and how he does it. It's so electric and exciting. Yep. It's so different that it stands out in my mind. One of my favorite scenes is, is in the original Ung Bak, that chase scene when he's running through the streets and he's like jumping through car windows and through those hoops. And, yeah, that's yeah. it. That's it. Yeah. And that's, I read, I read somewhere he did that in one take, which is insane. <laughs> Can you, I saw him in person do something and I, I you know, he was jumping up and I, I just couldn't even believe what I was seeing. I, I've seen Scott Atkins is another 
phenomenal athlete. I think yep. he's, if I had to guess, he's the perfect athlete, perfect martial artist. I never, I couldn't say that. <laughs> um, it'd be hard to say somebody's perfect, but Scott Atkins probably is the perfect martial artist with everything. Nice. Looks, charm, build, kicks, punch, jump, spin. I mean, everything. Yeah, he's another one I'm trying to get on the show. So <laughs> fingers crossed oh, yeah. on that one. I, so I, I, I had um, Isaac Florentine on the show who's directed Scott a few times. Basically right. sent an official request and say, could you please forward this to Scott? No, 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 no guarantees, no promises, but at least ask him. So fingers crossed. Yeah, at least you, ask him. Yeah. The worst he can do is say no. And I've only had a couple guests ever say no to me. So <laughs> I've been, I've been pretty lucky with the ones, the ones who at least respond some just don't respond, but the ones who've actually responded have pretty much all said yes. There's only a couple that have said no. So. Cool. Well, Keith, I did, I have to thank you. This has been so much fun. You've had such an amazing life, such an amazing career. And, and like I said, when the episode comes out, I will put links for everything. But is there anything I, maybe I forgot to ask you or we didn't get to cover that you want to quick mention before I let you go? Oh, no, I think you did a wonderful job and I enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, I think the thing I, I love talking about was that I'm excited like you are. You're so far ahead of me. But I have uh, the journey ahead of me, and I'm looking forward to it for my own podcast series. And I just can't wait because it's such a, it's not even a job. It's not work. When you're talking to a fellow, a fellow martial artist mm -hmm. and you're finding out all about their lives, that's fun. That's just exciting. It is. And I, I wish you nothing but the best of luck on that. And like I said, I, I can't wait to start listening myself. And, and I, I can't wait till people hear this episode. Wonderful. Thank you so much. All right, Brian. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.